Welcome to Radical Personal Finance, a show dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, insight, and encouragement you need to live a rich and meaningful life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. My name is Joshua, and today we're going to talk about the power of beta, the power of beta. Let me quickly clarify what I mean. Put very simply, if you can observe some large-scale macro trends and then align yourself, perhaps your career, perhaps your investments and your assets in line with those trends, then I'm convinced that you can win even if you don't happen to be the smartest person in the room. You just simply need to observe and align yourself with some trends and then get some big picture decisions right. Now, let's first begin with a discussion of alpha and beta. I'm going to use these terms in a way that they don't specifically mean, but I'm drawing inspiration from how they, what they mean in the marketplace of, of stock research and stock investing. Usually, when you talk about investing, the term beta is a measure of volatility of a particular investment, the ups and downs, the volatility of an investment relative to a benchmark. And so what beta does is it measures the systematic risk of a specific security or a specific portfolio when compared to an index, like say example, the S&P 500. That's what beta is. What's most interesting in your mind is to think about it in terms of alpha. What is alpha? Well, alpha is generally understood in stock investing to be the excess return of a particular stock or a particular mutual fund or a particular portfolio as compared to the the market out abroad to the, the the general marketplace. Now, that's what they mean in investing terms, but I'm going to just take inspiration from that and not try to talk about this in a technical sense. I'm going to analogize these terms alpha and beta and apply them in a very broad sense. Just note that from here going forward, these answers are not going to be correct on a CFA exam. I want to simply take these terms as inspiration to talk about this concept. When I think about alpha, I think very simply about outperformance. I think about finding a star, finding a winner. In the investment world, when you get alpha, it's because you're just a magical portfolio manager. You can come in and you can say, I know how to pick the very best stock. I know how to pick the very best company. Perhaps you go into a marketplace where there are five different packaged goods manufacturers and you say, this particular company has a star of a leader. And because of that star of a leader, I know that this company is going to win. Or perhaps you observe a telecommunications company. You say, this telecommunications company has an exciting new technology and I'm going to come in and I'm going to invest in that telecommunications company because it's going to be a winner. And thus, the idea is, in time, you can generate alpha. You can generate outperformance. In life, we often think of ourselves as needing to generate outperformance. We often think of ourselves as needing to be the star, needing to have the best of skills, needing to have the ability to go beyond where other people go. Now, alpha is awesome. If you can create alpha in your portfolio, you can do very, very well for yourself. 
You can make a fortune if you can do it in the investing world. If you can create alpha in your own life by being a star, you can do very, very well for yourself. And unlike perhaps the world of investments, which is maybe challenging for many of us, you can do this in your career. You can be the hardest working guy in the room. You can be the most prepared prior to the important meeting. You can be the best researcher. You can be the person that goes the extra mile. You can be a star employee. Or you can run a business that does very, very well. The challenge is this. If you get alpha right, but you get beta wrong, it's very hard to be successful. But if you get alpha right and you get beta right, now you have a winning formula. Again, remember, I'm not using these terms in the CFA sense. I'm trying to simply drive a concept. When I think about beta as compared to alpha, I think about the marketplace as a whole. I think about how is this general market going to do? What's going to happen with, say, telecommunications? Or what's going to happen with space travel? Or what's going to happen with the airline industry? What's my sense of the market? And then when I come back and I think about my life, I find even more applications for this. I think about not, am I the person who is by definition the best, but am I lined up with where the market is going? Because if you're in a rising industry or you're in a rising company, now you have the ability to succeed even if you may not be the star employee, the 10th hire to Facebook wound up becoming very, very rich, even though they were the 10th hire. And you can apply this all the way down the road. So the question for you to ask yourself is, am I getting my beta right? You might run the very best company in your industry. You might be the world's greatest entrepreneur, able to make the best decisions. You might be the world's greatest manager running a very well-run company. Your company might make the very best products. But if the year is 1900 and your company is engaged in the business of building buggy whips, you didn't get it right. You didn't win. You probably didn't survive. Now, I would quick be quick to point out that, of course, that's not guaranteed. Maybe today you're the world's greatest buggy whip manufacturer for the 577 people per year who buy a Surrey and hook it up and race their horse at the local track and they need a whip. I don't know. But the point is pretty obvious. The market changed under your feet. But if the year was 1900 and you saw the direction that transportation was going and you got involved in the industry, there was a very good chance that you experienced more success. Now, you may have joined the wrong company to start with. And I'm going to use a couple of legacy industries. Think about something like automobiles. Getting involved in the automobile industry when people are still trying to figure it out. And you've got hundreds and hundreds of different people making 10 cars a year. Well, 
The fact that you're involved in the automobile industry because you saw the direction of the industry was going didn't necessarily guarantee that you were going to be successful. You may have joined a company that had a bad product. But the fact that you were around the automobile industry and you saw the direction of the industry got you a step closer to success. And there was a pretty good chance that you had a timeline of success. And then once you're in the industry, you can look around and try to figure out, well, who's going to be the winner in this industry? Is it going to be Ford Motor Car Company? In which case, you may have gone and hitched your wagon up to Mr. Ford because you said this is going to be the winner. Or maybe it was airlines. Maybe you observed after the airplane was invented that, you know what, air travel has the potential to change the world. And if I go and get involved in air travel, then I have the ability to be in something that's going to be transformative. You may have ended up working for a company that went bankrupt. But once you're in the industry, you can adjust. You can look for your alpha. You can look for the opportunity to be the best employee at the best company. But first, you've got to get your beta right. You've got to get the industry right, and you've got to get the direction of the marketplace right. Maybe it was telecommunications. Perhaps it is telecommunications. But maybe you were involved in telecommunications, and it was the 1980s and the 1990s, and you said, you know what? The fact that we can make a phone call from anywhere and carry a phone on our hip, this is going to revolutionize the world. And if I just get involved in this industry in some way, there's a good chance that I can make my fortune. Well, making that move doesn't mean you don't wind up at a bankrupt company. But what it means is there's a much better chance that you're on an upswell. As the axiom goes, a rising tide raises all boats. Maybe it was the dot-com in the early 2000s. Maybe it was real estate. I don't know. But when you see a trend and you observe that trend, my point in today's show is that you should pay attention to it. And you should think about, how can I get involved in this trend? Can I get the beta right? So how can you apply this to your own finances? Well, the first thing that I would emphasize is that you should apply this to your income, to your earnings. I'm going to give an example of two different trends that I observe, especially trends that could be found in the space of where you're earning money. The first trend would be a legacy industry that may be on the decline. In, the, in my mind, and a good example of this industry would be the role of a real estate agent in the United States of America. For a very long time, working as a real estate agent has been something that could be a very profitable and very a really nice way to make a living. I have actually frequently recommended to people that they consider working as a real estate agent. It's the kind of job that I think I would be a pretty good fit for and that I would enjoy. Uh, working as a real estate agent can be a very good career. But in my opinion, this is my opinion, it is a career that at least in the United States, I don't know all markets around the world, but in the United States, it's a career that is on the decline. Why? Well, because in many cases, the individual work and service of an agent is increasingly replaced by internet technology and by people's comfort levels with going and seeing and viewing properties online, 
choosing among properties online, doing tours, virtual tours, establishing their own um, things, et cetera. Now, I'm not saying the industry is dead. I'm saying that I think the industry is significantly on the decline. I think that you're having the big players that are coming in that are disrupting the marketplace. And I will be very surprised if five years from now, 10 years from now, a traditional real estate agent can command the same level of commissions today that they've been able to command for many years. I'm not insulting you real estate agents. I'm saying, I think this is a good example of a trend. So if I were in the real estate business, I would be observing and looking at this trend and saying, I think my career may have a limited uh, time span, shelf life. I think that within a period of years, this particular career in the United States is going to become less profitable and more difficult. We could have used other careers as well. For example, this one's more difficult because there's more factors, but thing, let's just stick with a career, with real estate, okay? That'd be an example of, in my opinion, of a career that's on the decline in the United States, or at least its prospects are not as bright as it once was. Don't think, by the way, that these things will change overnight and all of a sudden. I could say a similar thing of the pressure on financial advisors. Financial advisors are under intense pressure in the current world. In the 1980s, it was very easy to be a financial advisor and make a lot of money selling stocks, charging management fees, et cetera. But the pressure, the financial pressure on financial advisors has been intense. So that now it's very hard to make a living going out and selling stocks for a commission. I, I know of virtually no financial advisors that, that can actually do that successfully, sell stocks for commission. You, why? Well, you had market pressures. You had the market pressures of uh, no commission uh, stock, stock brokerage houses. You had the market pressure of index funds, right? You had a, a, a mammoth like Vanguard that came in and brought tremendous pressure against the industry. You had uh, all kinds of, of fractures. Uh, fracturing in the financial industry such that now financial advisors have had to go in a totally different direction. doesn't mean the career is dead. It means it's under intense pressure and it wasn't as e it's not as easy as it once was. And if you're going to be successful, your success matters depends much more on your alpha, on what you bring to the table, than on the beta, on what the industry actually provides for you. In 1980, if you came to the table and you picked up the phone and you did your cold calls, you could make a great income selling stocks over the phone if you were persistent enough. In 2020, you cannot. It's a totally different business model and you've got to be much more intelligent about it. So there are two careers as an example. Now, where could you go where there's some sense of growth? Well, I think there'd be many examples. Um, Last night, I was looking around online in the cryptocurrency space, and I was observing that now there are several dozens of degrees available right now in blockchain technology from really all over the world. But you can get, now go and you can get a degree in blockchain technology. Last night, I was looking at the website for the University of Malta. Malta, um, between Africa and Europe, little island off the tip of, tip of Italy, has sought to bill itself as blockchain island. Right? They've tried to be very friendly. They've tried to establish regulation for cryptocurrency businesses with, I would say, mixed success, not as much success as was hoped thus far, and we'll see what happens. But they've tried to bill themselves as blockchain 
uh, island. So the University of Malta has a career, sorry, has a master's degree program that you can go and you can be involved in and get a master's degree in blockchain technology. In my opinion, this would be a pretty good example of an area where there's massive growth, of an area where if you are competent in some skills relating to cryptocurrency, cryptocurrencies, to blockchain technology, this is something where there's a lot of career growth. When you have Bitcoin hitting, you know, 50, almost $60,000 per coin, and with just only modest signs of stopping, now all of a sudden you see a pretty significant field. And then you see people and countries and companies trying to say, how can we take this new technology and apply it in different areas. Now, I don't know what the end of the day is, you know, what, where we're going to be 10 years from now with cryptocurrencies and with blockchain technology. There's a lot of reason to believe that they'll be an integral part of our lives. But this would be an example of the type of career where I think things are in a growth pattern. Now, perhaps that's a little bit too innovative or a little bit too rare for you. I think another obvious example would be something as simple and mundane as being a software engineer. You could begin today with no history, no knowledge. You could be working as a real estate agent today, looking down and realizing my career is declining, but you can start studying software engineering entirely for free, by the way, no need to take any classes that you pay for, start doing projects, start going through the various coaching sites and the, and the education sites and whatnot. And then a few years from now, you could have a six-figure job as a software engineer with massive growth potential. And as the world moves more and more intensively in the direction of software solutions for more and more parts of life, the need for software engineers is intense. I don't see any way that that particular career is in decline at the moment. Although there may be heavy competition, it's not in decline. And there are many other examples of these. Now, don't just think that if you just find beta, it's good enough, or if you just have alpha, it's good enough. I think the power, I teach this, I teach a course on uh, career and income planning. Uh, it's called the Radical Personal Finance Guide to Career and Income Planning, available for you today right now at RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash store. And one of the concepts that I teach in that course is the power of choosing uh, very carefully and maximizing both your beta and your alpha. Somebody who carefully chooses an industry that is growing in a location, a geographic location of the world that is growing and where the trends are in the right direction. And they choose the best company in the industry that has the brightest prospects. And then within that company, they choose the best uh, segment, the best division of the company where it's the most important division of the company. And then to the degree that it's possible, they choose the best boss in that division to work under and they choose the best job position for them. And then they go into that workplace and they work their tail off and they become an absolute star exercising their alpha. That person is going to be light years away of the person who has the capability and potential to be a star, but works under a bad boss in a division of a company that's not particularly valuable, in a company that's poorly run, and in an industry or a geographic place in the world that's in decline. So to get the maximum benefit in your career, you want to stack all of these things on top of each other. In summary, on the career perspective, think carefully about the trends that are happening. 
I've listed a number of trends. But think carefully about these. It's well and, it's all well and good for you to be personally success-oriented, for you to be the person who has the basic skills to be effective and, and successful and valuable in the marketplace. But if you're not positioned well, again, think about your boss. If you're under the wrong boss, that can be the death of you. That in and of itself, if you're under somebody who is not going to raise you up with them, if you're under somebody who's not going to recognize it when you make them shine, you got a problem. Change to a different boss. If you're in a division of the company that's not particularly contributing to growth, change. If you're in the wrong company, change. But the big ones to get right are industry, and I would say also geography. Think carefully about your industry. You may, and this is one of the things that I get upset a lot of times with the concepts of passive investing, right? of, of, of saying to yourself, I can't successfully choose what stocks are going to outperform. And the reason I get upset with it is not because I have the ability to argue with the academic research. I don't. I'm not a researcher at the Chicago School of Economics who could sit down and generate new economic investing theories worthy of a Nobel Prize. It's not my forte. But what I think happens is I think that people take it too far. And I believe that this has hurt me personally. I'll start with me personally. When I was younger, I spent so much time being told by the financial industry that, well, Joshua, you can't tell successfully with any statistical reliability, you can't tell what's going to outperform. And I was told that again and again and again, and I would read the academic literature and I didn't have the ability to refute it. I didn't have the ability to say, well, wait, wait a second, wait a second. You know, yes, you've got your hypothesis, Mr. You know, fancy pants academic researcher, but I think I can. And what would happen is I would just say, well, I can't do it, right? I can't predict it. I can't predict it. I can't predict it. The problem is for me, this went far too far, far beyond what the academic research would indicate to areas where the academic philosophy, the, sorry, the academics who created that numerical modeling that said, hey, it's very difficult for a fund manager to outperform. I absorbed this concept in my own life. To, to much too great of a degree. And I came to the perspective and I said, well, I can't predict you know, what market's going to be. I, I can't predict what stock is going to be the next winner. I didn't understand that there were ways that to make money on stocks, even if I couldn't predict it successfully and to ensure my bets. I didn't get that. I wasn't sophisticated enough at that time. Then I thought, well, I can't predict what market segment or I can't predict the general direction of the stock market. Or I can't predict what industries are going to take off. Or I can't predict what regions of the world are going to be successful. And when I test those ideas, I realize that I was completely wrong. Now, I may not be the world's best stock picker, but I can look at something as simple as demographics and make some educated guesses about where I think things are going. Now, in the fullness of time, will I turn out to be right or wrong? I don't know but I can make some educated guesses and I'm willing to put my money behind that. One of the, this is just, again, speaking personally for me, 
when I finally realized where this came from, is when, again, I become frustrated with passive investing because I believe that one of the dangers, maybe not for most people, but at least for me, one of the dangers was that it led me to doubt my own abilities. I don't do, I'm not so much of a maverick in the sense of my ability to go against everybody and say, well, I just have it all figured out. I admire people who can. I admire somebody who can stand up and in a room full of people saying, you know, that thing is white. They can say, no, it's not. It's not white, it's black. And they can be totally convinced of it. I'm too much of a researcher and analytical. And I said, well, listen, if 98% of the people say it's white, there's a very good chance it's white. And I want to see some really good evidence that it's actually black before I open my mouth and say it's black. So if I've had 18 years to do the research, then I might be willing to be one of the 2%. In some things, I'm, I'm totally willing to be the 2%. But I'm not willing to open my mouth at an early stage where there are other people who are just, they, they, they have a gut instinct and they say, no, that's, that's just the way it is. This is the way the world is. I admire those people. That's not me. And all of that like idea about the, the efficient market hypothesis, I took it far too far in my own life. And it's hurt me because I didn't have the, 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 the forethought to be willing to take bets on things that I thought were true. Well, speaking personally, now that I have identified that, I'm changing. I was wrong. I've identified to the best of my ability the source of why I was wrong. And now I reject that previous way of thinking. And I'm willing at this point in my life to take bets on myself and on my own hunches. I have a good safety mechanism with good financial planning to say, hey, I'm not going to ruin myself, but I'm willing to bet my money on what I think is happening. And I'm willing to bet my life on it. I'm willing to make life decisions on it. I'll give you a couple of examples. Okay. Geography matters. Geography matters to your daily experience of life. I've tried to emphasize how important that is. If you like living a beach lifestyle, choose a beach place to live. If you like a mountains lifestyle, choose a mountains lifestyle to live. But geography also matters to economics. This is why all over the world, the trend is for people to move from rural regions into cities. As far as I can tell, the continued growth of megacities is inevitable. Um, I guess inevitable is too much of a word, uh, but it's, very, it's, it's a very strong chance that, that the cities are going to continue to grow. doesn't mean that all cities are going to continue to grow everywhere. But on the whole, speaking globally, mega cities and very large cities, as I see it, are going to continue to grow because what they offer is a very, very compelling set of benefits. Now, there may be difficulties, right? New York City might be in difficult, in difficult, a difficult place right now. Um, San Francisco might be in a very difficult place right now. I think there's good reasons to believe that the difficulties in these particular cities will continue. But I don't expect Mexico City to continue to be in a difficult space. I don't expect, um, you know, Istanbul to face those same trends. There are some unique trends, I think, about a, about certain things that are happening in the U.S. culture that are going to continue. But at the end of the day, New York is still going to continue to be attractive to many people. And on a global basis, some of the other global megacities have some benefits that a city like a New York City doesn't have. So I think this this trend is going to continue. So if you wanted, if you were living out in the country and you wanted to get yourself in the way of a beta trend, you're going to find it easier to build wealth, to get a good job if you move from a little podunk town in the middle of nowhere to a city. There's going to be more economic opportunities, which is why millions and millions of people all around the world are doing this. 
If it's not right for you, you don't want to live in a city, doesn't mean you have to, especially today. You can make a fortune in the country, but you should be aware that if you don't have any better ideas, you can probably increase your earning power by moving to a city. But let's talk about globally. This to me seems obvious. I personally am convinced that most of the West, specifically Western Europe and North America, most of these countries are in either malaise or decline. I don't think that they'll be in precipitous decline. I think what's more personally more likely is a general sense of malaise. Where I'm most familiar, of course, the United States, I think you see this. You see just this general sense of lack of optimism for the future. You see incredible levels of discontent, of discord in the society. You you don't get a sense of uh, a people bursting with energy and a vision for the future. You don't get a sense of collaboration. Now, what can change this? I don't know. Maybe some amazing leader could come along and re-inspire it. Maybe a, a JFK could say, we're going to the moon. And all of a sudden, everyone says, yes, we're going to the moon, right? I love to watch Apollo 13. I love to see a movie like that and, and imagine what it was like to be living in a time when you do that. I, I had, you know, you have some of that pride when they land a, a rover on Mars. I have some of that pride when I watch SpaceX launches. I really enjoy watching um, SpaceX launches with my children. I gain some, some kind of glimmer of that sense of nationalistic pride again. Um, So maybe it happens again. It could. But in general, I think there's good reasons to believe that these areas are in decline. I'll give some examples just so that you can consider for yourself. In my observation, there are probably three big things that, maybe four, that really hinder the West generally, uh, Western Europe, North America. I'll just speak mostly about the United States. One of the most obvious ones is population decline. Um, Most Western countries have birth rates far below replacement rates. So you don't have a uh, a stable sense of of population, but you have declining population. Now, this is generally being offset right now with immigration. Right? You have a country like Canada, this, this relatively small country that's importing hundreds of thousands of immigrants every year to try to lead to economic growth and seems to be successful, at least in, in some measures, things like real estate marketplaces, et cetera. But it's primarily happening through immigration. Immigration brings its own unique set of challenges. You see this all around the world. Uh, in my experience, I've never traveled a place where there's just been total, complete peace and harmony between um, large numbers of immigrants. You see this in Western Europe. You see general sense of societal unease relating to immigrants from Africa. You see this in North America with immigrants from all over, all over, all over but in the United States, especially from Central America. And so you see this general sense of tension happening across across the society, at least a political um, strife, et cetera. Why? Well, and, and, and does that change? Well, I don't, per my opinion, I don't think it changes. Number one, um, the cultural trend seems to be against having children, which means declining population. And while I think that most of these countries with declining populations are going to have to massively increase their immigration perspectives, at this point in time, I don't think that there's a solid enough home country culture 
to lead to successful assimilation of immigrants. And so I think we're going to see more and more balkanization, so to speak, more and more um, separation, where instead of having uh, immigrants being able to be assimilated into a strong central culture, you'll see various groups of immigrants retaining their own local identity rather than rather than um, grasping the central identity. You see this right now in France with the French government seeking to pass laws requiring the French Muslim uh, community to integrate more fully into the community. Um, you, and this is especially, I think, challenging in secular cultures like you see in France, uh, because I, my personal opinion, I don't think secularism has the foundation to do that. I personally think that you'll see much uh, a massive growth of Islam throughout Western Europe rather than a growth of secularization. We'll see in the coming years. Um, but this 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 point of population growth is a major factor. Now, what is this? What, what does this matter? Well, it ties into the second time, the second thing. Um, when you look at a culture like the United States, you see that it is burdened by the decisions and the promises of the past. So you had a previous um, very robust, very healthy economy, very healthy country. You had growing populations. You had economic growth. It seemed like the sky was the limit. And so then you had people come out and pass all of these ideas. We're going to have Medicare. We're going to have Social Security. We're going to have social safety nets. Um, we can borrow money to expand. It's all going to be great. It's going to be fantastic. But then when you have a declining population, all of a sudden now those promises don't work anymore. And yet the society is still burdened under the weight of these things. So you see the, the political instability in the United States. You see this whipsaw effect between a George W. Bush and then a snapping all the way over to a Barack Obama. Then a snapping from a Barack Obama to a Donald Trump. Then a snapping from a Donald Trump to a Joe Biden. And then we'll see what's next. Why? Well, you have this government that is laden by dec decades and decades of promises, but those promises weren't paid for. And so it's very easy for a politician to identify the problems and with skillful public rhetoric to rile people up to vote for him. But then when he comes into office, there's virtually nothing he can do because there's this immense bureaucracy whose hands and feet are all tied by all of these promises. And the, you know, the U.S. president elected in 2020 can only affect a tiny percentage of the budget compared to a U.S. president elected in 1920. Why? Because 75% of the budget goes to Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and military spending. So you have a, a country that's mired in these decisions of the past and these expectations that were built for a society that no longer exists. And this leads to a sense of malaise, a sense of frustration. In the same way, so well, I'll finish it. And then you have a world in which you have a flattening occur. And many of the geographical features, many of the technological features where you had U.S. American superiority, well, those areas of superiority are no longer as clear. So you have a massive empire that's difficult to maintain, and it seems to me I don't see a lot of room for things to run, personally. So when I think about where are things likely to be in the West in the coming years, where are things likely to be in the United States economically 30 years from now, 50 years from now, again, could be wrong, but to me it seems pretty obvious that without a massive level of bankruptcy to clear the old debt— that a society like the United States is going to be pretty well mired in <laughs> malaise for quite a while.
let's use a personal finance example. Imagine a guy, you know, maybe a 55-year-old guy. He's been really successful, very successful. But the reality is he's more tired at 55 than he was at 25. And imagine that he built his whole life thinking that he was going to be as energetic at 55 as he was at 25, and he made all these decisions to borrow lots and lots and lots of money, to sign himself up for all kinds of obligations. And so his financial life became very, very heavy. And now at 55, he's trying to maintain the image of being the guy who's still got it all together, but the reality is he's not as vigorous or as productive as he used to be. It's kind of how I picture the United States. It's not that the 55-year-old guy is going to die today. It's just that he's really burdened down, right? He's, he's got a lot of debt. He's not as young as he once was. He doesn't have the advantages as he once was. He can't move his fingers on his iPhone screen as quickly as his 15-year-old son can. And yet he's living in a world in which that iPhone screen is a ticket to wealth for many 15-year-olds. It's not to say he's not powerful, right? The 55-year-old guy has connections. He has power. He's got all of the legacy that he has, but he's just, he's, he's aging and he's burdened. So now compare that kind of society with some other societies. Compare it with Asia. Now, the birth rate story in Asia is not strictly clear. There's Asia is a very big place. You'd have a place like Japan that's had negative birth rates for 40 years. Um, but compare that would be, you know, compared with a place like Thailand or Vietnam or Cambodia, you know, where there's much more of a sense of energy and there's much more of a growth. I think birth rates matter massively. You can see when you see a culture that's expanding, there's a sense of optimism and growth, and that youthful energy can bring a lot of instability, right? You see that. You see a society where there's a lot of, a lot of young people, but low employment, and it can be very inst- unstable. But it can also bring tremendous economic growth. You go back to the baby boom in the United States. It made a massive difference in terms of the economic growth of the nation. So birth rates, population makes a big difference. But What's more important? Well, many of these societies in Asia are not burdened down by the debt, the promises, right? The decades and decades of promises that a place like the United States is. And I think what's also very important is when you look at the relative level of poverty versus wealth. In my mind, the economic opportunities for Asia, Africa, um, South America, they're clearly bigger because there's clearly more room to go. There's clearly more opportunities. It's very hard, I think, to look at a a wealthy nation, to look at a a Singapore, right? Uh, That's a spectacular success story in itself. But let's just look at the United States, right? It's very hard to look at a nation like the United States and say, on the whole, how do standards of living increase significantly? Generally, when people think about increasing standard of living in the United States, they think about making things easier and less expensive rather than in having more, right? They think about saying, well, let's have government-provided health uh, healthcare programs because that makes life easier for you and removes a burden of providing for your own health needs. Let's provide some kind of income. Let's give more money to poor people and provide poor people with more. But when you come to actual standard of living as measured by consumption, it's hard to see how you get a lot more consumption 
across the stand across the the, the board. And when you have a, an economy that's built on consumption, it's hard to see where the massive growth comes from. Now, maybe there's a new technology, right? Maybe you saw this in telecommunications and, and some things over the last few decades. Maybe there'll be a new technology that we just don't see right now. But even if there is a new technology, it's hard for me personally to see how that results in a massively growing economy. But when you go to a place like China and you think about 30 years ago, what the average person was living in versus today, it's just night and day. When you go to Mexico and you look at the broader Mexican population and you think about the consumer goods and the lifestyle choices and whatnot that many Mexicans would like to have, the beta, meaning the opportunity to rise, seems so much stronger in my opinion because you have people that want a lot of the luxury goods that you see in some other economies. So to me, it just seems fairly obvious that a simple decision like that would make all the difference in the world. Jim Rogers had a famous quote, or had a quote, I don't know if it's famous or not, but it's something that's always stuck with me since I read his, um, his book when I was in high school. He wrote this book called, I think it was Adventure Capitalist. Um, I think that was the one with him in his car. Uh, Jim Rogers was a, a, stock, a stock fund guy, a mutual fund manager, uh, maybe hedge fund guy, I can't remember. Very successful trader. And um, I got interested in him, stumbled across his book in the library because he had this book of this yellow car that was built on a four-wheel drive chassis. And I grabbed it and I just thought it was so interesting. I read his story. What happened was he, he took a, a Mercedes. He had made a lot of money, decided he wanted to travel around the world. Younger in his life, I think in the 80s, he had motorcycled across China and that had changed his perspective of the world. And then he had made a lot of money and he and his wife, I think his third wife at the time, or maybe second, I don't remember, but he bought a, a Mercedes G-Wagon, a Galenda wagon, Galenda wagon and va wagon, I guess, uh, a G-Wagon. And he t had them take the body off of it and he had them put the Mercedes convertible body onto it. Um, which they adjusted. And so he had this wacky looking car and then he made a little trailer for it and he proceeded to drive around the world visiting all these countries. So I read his book and uh, I don't remember if it was in that book or later, but he had this, this thing where he said that, that you know, a wealthy, or, or sorry, a smart man in 1800 would have moved to London. And what I would add is a smart man in 1800 would have moved to London and had his fortune made. A smart man in 1900 would have moved, I think he said to New York City, maybe San Francisco, I can't remember, but would have moved to New York City or San Francisco. And I would add, would have had his fortune pretty well made. Just the simple fact of moving to New York City or moving to San Francisco in 1900 would have put you in contact with so much opportunity. A smart man in 2000 would have moved to Singapore. One-fifth of every resident or citizen of Singapore is a millionaire today. It's one of the most incredible success stories of the 21st century. It's an amazing story. And I think if you think about that, you can see how being in the right place where there's this social growth, where there's this growth of e economy, growth of opportunity, can put you where you can see the opportunities more easily. If you're living in Poughkeepsie, Illinois, is that a place? Or, or, or <laughs> um, I don't know, Polk County, Florida, or... Uh, rural Kansas or rural South Dakota or something like that. It's very hard to imagine what's happened in Singapore. But if you had gone to Singapore and seen it and observed it, it would have opened your eyes. 
I mean, for me, the most eye-opening experience I had from this perspective was the first time I went to Hong Kong. As I remember, I think it was in college at the time. I think it was 2005. It was the time when, this, maybe it was 2004. It was the time when they had the um, tsunami in Indonesia and Thailand. Uh, I was in Hong Kong when that happened at Christmas. And I went to Hong Kong. And when I had been in high school, I had gone to New York City. And I'd always been impressed with New York City. I thought it was great. And then I went to Hong Kong. And I arrived in Hong Kong and I looked around and I couldn't believe my eyes. I spent days walking around the city by myself with no, no purpose. I walked through Kowloon, I'd walk through uh, Hong Kong Island. I spent time in the new territories and I would wander in and out of random shops and wandering out of restaurants and bars and, and like just wandering around. And it was just the most overwhelming thing I'd ever seen. And I thought never in my life will I ever think that New York City is a, a world-class city compared to Hong Kong. That was my experience. It was what started to open my eyes when you start to see, wait a second, this is totally different. So I personally think to me, it's the most obvious thing. It's fairly obvious that, that uh, you know, the growth in the next couple of decades is going to come from Asia, possibly from Africa. Why? Population growth, no debt. No empire, no you know decades of promises that have to be bankrupted their way out of, which is going to create intense instability in the society. Right in the coming years and years, when the United States starts to um, fulfill fewer and fewer of its promises, it's going to create more and more instability, unhappiness. Right, because people have grown to to depend on that. So unless there's some unexpected massive economic wave, which I don't know where it's going to come from, the, it's going to create instability in the society. And then you've got the opportunity for standards of living to rise much farther in Laos or, or Cambodia than you have in, in, in Munich, right? Or in Paris. So to me, it seems obvious. Now, there are industries in that in that place where you, I got went a little long on kind of countries, but the point is that just being in a physical geographic location can make a big difference for you. Physical geographic location, industry selection, and then career or job within an industry. These are things that make a big difference. Now, thus far, I, I went a little longer and deeper on careers than I meant to, but this is the biggest ticket for most people, be it your career, a job, or be it your career, a business. If you can get a business where you can serve people, you can do it. So back to an example of a dying industry. I have tried several times to get several of my friends who are real estate agents in the United States to leave the United States and to go and set up a real estate agency in other countries, many other countries around the world. Why? Well, I think that you can take something that, in my opinion, is a dying industry or profession or a, a profession that has dim prospects, at least in the way that it's currently done in a place like the United States. And you can take it to another place and it can be a tremendously valuable profession in another place. You can take your real estate business in the United States and go to Central or South America. And if you'll take the same level of service, the same level of, of efficiency, the same level of sales training, customer service, et cetera, you could possibly build a national empire in a way that allows you to have 
major competitive advantages and allows you to serve your customers and build a much more powerful system. So a geographic change is one tool, but it's not the only tool. There are many other tools to look at to think about where can I grow this. So if you're in something that's declining, think about how you can adapt, adjust, change. And remember, you're only ever a few years away from a brand new life. You could be today a truck driver, a truck driver, long haul trucking across Canada. And you say, you know what? I think my my job has a relatively short lifespan. I think that self-driving trucks are probably going to be making their presence known very intensively within five or 10 years. I need to be thinking about this. And in three or four or five years, you can be completely retooled, re-educated, re-equipped for a brand new career. You could be the world's leading cryptocurrency programmer or the world's leading cryptocurrency expert within a few years. You could grab yourself, you know, spend your time in your truck studying everything there is to know about cryptocurrency, thinking through the issues, thinking about how to organize them, understanding the applications for blockchain technology. At night, instead of watching movies in the cab of your truck, you're sitting there spending time studying the companies, understanding the innovators. You take your time off to go to the conferences. You start a web program, uh, a podcast. You start a thing that gets you in front of all these people all around the world. You become known as the go-to guy. You go ahead and get that master's degree from, you know, the University of Malta. Cost you ten thousand euros, by the way, for the whole thing. Um, get the master's degree from the University of Malta in blockchain technology. And in five years from now, you can be one of the world's most sought-after pundits or or practitioners in the world of blockchain technology, investing your money with the winners uh, along the way. We're all three, four, five, maybe ten years at the maximum away from a completely different lifestyle. So don't be sad if your career is not lining up with where there's an opportunity for really good beta. Be Just recognize, hey, this is a fact and I need to change and adjust. Okay, what about investments? Well, I think with investments, I have less to say here, but I would, but I would say that with investments, you need to focus on beta before you focus on alpha. For example, I think this is why do why in real estate do you have the saying location, 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 location? Well, because if you buy the best house in a bad neighborhood, you're going to lose your shirt from an investment perspective versus buying the worst house in the best neighborhood. Why? Well, as to do with location, the things that people find desirable, it's, you're, if you have a, a walkable apartment in a downtown area in a major city, that's going to be forever more desirable than a place kind of out on the fringes. If you're dealing at the upper end of the market, you're serving the wealthy, that's generally going to be more insulated. Why? Because wealthy people suffer less during economic instability. And there, there's many other ways to apply it. I don't know how you apply this in, in the stock market. Um, for example, I'm not saying you should just sell all your index funds and go and buy real estate in Bangkok. Um, I don't think that'd be a good idea. One of the nice things that you are engaged in, and one of the wonders of the modern financial world, when you own well-run investments, when you own companies on the New York Stock Exchange, those companies are every day strategizing about how to earn their income from these growing markets. Coca-Cola Corporation is every day looking and saying, how do we sell more Coke products? Apple Computers is saying, how do we sell more Apple products all around the world? 
Samsung, every single one. And so you can benefit, even if you own a stock that is publicly traded in the United States or London or wherever, that stock can still be benefiting from the growth around the world. So while I'm, I think that the U.S. economy is in a malaise, that doesn't by definition mean that the U.S. stock market is going to have the same experience. You might find it much more exciting and, and a much better experience to go and be involved in, in something on the frontier markets, um, but you might not. So I don't know how to guide you on that. Um, that's, that's a little bit, I have some ideas. I'm investing my money in areas where I think there's growth. I guess maybe one obvious example would be something like cryptocurrency, right? You've seen this amazing run up in cryptocurrency supercharged this last week with the announcement that more and more large U.S. companies are devoting large holdings to Bitcoin. Um, you know, there was just the announcement a couple of days ago, of the first um, DeFi index fund, which is kind of an exciting development as well. So if you think that there's a future of cryptocurrency, if you think that there's a future of blockchain, I do personally, then just simply allocating some of your money to it can put you in line with the beta, even if you don't necessarily have the solution for what's going to be the winner. Do I know whether Bitcoin is going to be the currency of choice 20 years from now? I don't know. I don't know. Um, do I know? I, I don't know. You know, Ethereum or Bitcoin Cash or Share Ring or what, you know, Dogecoin. I don't know. Like, what's going to be the winner? I don't know. But you can start to expose yourself to the beta. I think that these places, these are going to, my personal opinion, these are going to be around and they're going to be a very, very large growth industry. Why? Well, they solve some significant problems for people, which is exciting. So in, some, in, in conclusion, think about the beta in your life. Think about, am I positioned to gain a benefit from beta? You don't have to, if you see everyone going out to California for a gold rush, you don't have to strike it rich on a particular claim. You can just say, everyone's moving to California, and you can go and start selling them their shovels. I've tried to use as many historical examples as I can think of, but historicals are examples are easy because you can see them in the hindsight, but they're harder in the present because you can get it wrong. What I'll tell you is that in my life, personally, the more time that I spend just simply analyzing things and going with my gut and thinking, no, I'm not going to buy this line that somehow I'm incapable of outperforming the market in the wrong way that I did when I was younger. Rather, I'm a smart guy. I can look around. I can see the world. I can understand that most people are just about like me. We're all pretty similar, right? Maybe 90% similar. We all have similar desires, et cetera. And I can see the long-ranging trends. And I don't have to get it perfectly right to benefit from the general trend. I don't have to get it perfectly right to benefit from the general trend. And then if you'll incorporate the safety of what I talked about in the last show of ratios, of you know, thinking through your positions, of spreading things around based upon a way that makes sense to you. And I'll make sure that I'm just cautious and I don't take a wipeout risk. Now I think you've got a winning formula. I hope that you'll share this show with young people. I hope that you'll teach them these concepts because these are some of the concepts that I wish that somebody had taught me. And I feel some, sometimes I feel like I'm 20 years too late. 
Like if I had just known this at 15 years old, man, I would have, if I only had done that for 15 years old, I would have just been so much more successful. Well, unfortunately that was then and this is now. But the point is I can still apply these things today and so can you. Thank you for listening to today's show. Um, in closing, I guess I should just share with you that um, you should check out my career and income course. Go to RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash store. And if this has been useful for you, consider signing up for my guide to career and income planning because there are more good concepts like this there in that show. Sorry, in that course. RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash store. And I'll be back with you very soon.